Hello, and welcome to the All Angles podcast, where we look to unpack the wonderful world of ESG investing one conversation at a time. The views expressed are those of the speaker and are subject to change at any time. These views are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a recommendation to purchase any security or as a solicitation or investment advice from the advisor. No forecast can be guaranteed. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Fran Jan Medell, who has over 20 years of experience in ESG, so stalwart, and is the Director of Stewardship at MFS. In this conversation, after we learn a little bit more about Fran and her background, we deep dive into stewardship, what it means and what some of the emerging trends are today, specifically in the context of the net zero transition, which is an area that MFS has been focusing on for a little while, and we are on the cusp of declaring our public targets through the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. This is a really fascinating theme and topic, and as Fran and I will discuss, this is one that I'm sure we will be talking about for many years to come. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the All Angles podcast through Spotify, Apple, or wherever you'd like to get your podcast from. And if you have any questions that you would like us to cover in this introduction, please do get in touch by emailing allangles at mfs.com. We would love to hear from you. So Fran, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Fran, we're going to start, as we always do, with a little bit of background on you, just so we can frame where your comments are coming from. So please give us a potted history of how you got here. Okay, brilliant. Um, Well, I grew up um, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, which is also known as Eastern Germany, a beautiful part of Eastern Germany, very, very close to historical Weimar, which uh, a lot of people know because of inflation, Uh, but it definitely has much more to give. So so in terms of um, my background, how I ended up in sustainability uh, was that my, my childhood Uh, always made me look at different angles um, uh, as this podcast is trying to allude to and perspectives. So I grew up in communism um, when I was 11. My country changed to um, um, nearly a wild west capitalism, I suppose, which which I looked at and uh, the reunification of Germany really left out uh, quite a lot of the environmental and social aspects when forming um, uh, the new constitution of Germany. So so that really made me ponder for, for quite some time. <clears throat> When I was 18, I uh, started studying theology uh, and found my North Star in in my professor, uh, who was at the time chair of moral theology and and really a pioneer in in trying to understand um, what ethical and moral responsibilities uh, companies have. And uh, he put together or we put together as a group a first methodology of how to assess uh, companies' environmental, uh, social and, and at the time cultural dimension uh, that, that we want to understand better and, and how we can compare companies in different sectors, in different markets without uh, forgetting uh, what cultural heritage each uh, company has. The cultural dimension has gotten lost a little bit, I suppose, uh, uh, in favor of governance. Um, but more and more, it, it's coming back as a dimension that uh, that that we are considering uh, in our voting and um, ESG integration decisions. So I suppose that that was the the first part of my life. Uh, And in my master's thesis, I compared ESG research providers uh, across 
um, uh, Europe and the Northern Hemisphere, uh, which is now very, very different, but it enabled me to uh, join IRIS at the time, uh, an ESG research house in London. Uh, I worked there for 10 years. Now they're part of Moody's. Everything um, consolidates. Uh, so, so that's how I made my way into London. I then worked for Rafa and Active, uh, absolute return focused um, uh, investment manager in, in London uh, as their head of responsible investment. And then MFS came along and um, here I am. <laughs> we stole you away. Well, we're yeah. very glad that you're here as we will talk about in terms of the importance of work that you're focused on now. Um, you may have answered this already in terms of thinking about growing up in Eastern Germany. I remember, so I, I did, I studied economics at university and there was a I think half a module on inflation where the lead title was Beware the Weimar Republic. So I'm sure I'm glad to hear that there's a lot more to Weimar than just thinking about inflation and inflation obviously extremely topical today. Um, what is your why? So, you know, you've talked about where you began and the thesis that you've you know been operating from, thinking about culture, thinking about how corporates can act on climate change or on other issues, the responsibilities that they have. What motivates you to do what you do uh, every day before we before we get into what it is you're actually doing on a week by week basis? Well, I suppose it's uh, affecting change uh, that that you see um, suboptimal performance uh, at at a corporate level, uh, and uh, you know, uh, and and that was also something I I got from from my professor in moral theology how important uh, shareholders are to hold uh, companies accountable, uh, and uh, I suppose over the last twenty years when I started out uh, that accountability. Um, was used more and more by, by shareholders uh, and really started to increase uh, post a great financial crisis where, where shareholders felt maybe we should look more closely uh, how boards are being held accountable, um, what externalities they are not um, uh, currently um, dealing with, like environmental pollution, climate change, uh, and also what other stakeholders uh, companies should be consulting uh, on like employees, for example, they are, they are very important uh, uh, at German uh, supervisory and board level. You know, what other stakeholders are there that that um, lead uh, for the company to perform better over time? So that that was always really my my main why, why, why I love uh, working in, in ESG. It's extremely um you know, there's a great variety every day. No day is different, um, uh, and um, really important topics that have uh, challenged the whole world um, over the last 20 years, like climate change, where you know we all of a sudden have gone from 50 climate-related laws, maybe in around 2,000 to two and a half thousand climate-related laws, um, you know, over the last uh, couple of years, and 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 there are massive risks for. For our clients, uh, so uh, we 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 put that into into context in terms of how we engage with companies, how we assess companies, what our conviction levels on 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 these companies are, and and these issues. Mm, thanks, Ryan. I, I mean, your ESG is obviously such in the sort of zeitgeist of today in terms of everyone's talking about sustainability. Um, and. I'd love to ask you the question on, you know, you think about the early 2000s and where we were and those sort of 50 laws and now, you know, we're inundated with new legislation seemingly every single day and, and you know, lots of pressure from uh, every every corner, right? Consumers, companies, 
asset owners, savers, investment managers, regulators, governments around the world. Just taking that sort of 20 year sort of perspective, how would you, how would, is there a way that you would kind of characterize sort of where we are today in the trajectory of, of sort of history? Because for a lot of people listening, this feels very new. But again, this is a field that you've been interested in for kind of over 20 years now. So big question, how would you think about where we are today relative to the last 20 years? Is this kind of natural evolution? Are we seeing step change um, in, in your eye and in the engagements that you're having with companies? Absolutely. So I, I suppose at the beginning, when when I studied theology, um, it was very much aligning um, ethical and moral values with investment decision making. So my professor, for example, he drove around all of Germany um, and speaking to religious orders, churches to invest their money um, with the values they they otherwise apply in giving out grants, you know, if they're if they're giving out grants to su support children, you know, why had they not included, for example, child labor in their investment decision making process. So they he, he took a lot of time to uh, align um, values uh, with investment decision, uh, whereas I suppose over the last 10 years, um, uh, recent opportunity has has become much more of a focus uh, where where shareholders appreciate uh, that environmental and social and governance risks are uh, financial risks to their portfolios and that they should be taken into consideration uh, by you know understanding how environmental laws have expanded what what they do to companies um, how governments are evolving much faster uh, in terms of setting new laws um, um, and and it has really propelled the responsible investment market, which was perceived relatively niche, um, you know, 20 years ago, uh, in into into mainstream investment. And um, yeah, the the demand has really gone up to understand how to how to price these risks in. I, I don't think they have been priced in everywhere yet, mm. uh, and there's much more to come uh, with um, carbon taxes uh, and carbon emissions, you know still being probably um, miscounted uh, in some companies, uh, but it's definitely increased by um, uh, much better disclosure uh, on these data points. Uh, social issues are, are still not uh, as much in focus as an, in environmental quantitative data, uh, but, but we are getting there. Good. Always the optimist. Um, that's what I always appreciate in our conversations. I, I want to get into climate and you mentioned some of the issues but before I do just specifically to stewardship and engagement how how would you say that your approach towards that or how would you characterize your approach to that firstly but how do you think that's evolved over the last few years you know I think our, some of our listeners will be very familiar with this idea that I always talk about stewardship is the sort of central plank really of of our approach to sustainability we think that we have to act as responsible stewards of capital so it has to be central um, but it is, again, one of the frontiers of sustainability that's, in, to my eye at least, evolved the most rapidly in the last few years. Would you agree with that? How, how would you characterize how you think about stewardship and engagement and how that sort of changed over the, over the recent history? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so again, going back to um, 20 years ago, um, uh, in, in our discussions uh, at the university, uh, the best in class approach was really favored the most uh, because um, 
people, members of, of our group felt that it would incentivize an ethical moral competition with, within a sector where, you know, the, the, the best, um, the leader in the group in, in terms of sustainability would drag the laggards along and, and, and they, they would, you know, uh, join uh, the leaders at the top. Um, and I, I think that is still prevalent uh, for, for some of the um, ethical investors in the world uh, and therefore often uh, laggards mm. are being excluded uh, in, in, in this best in class approach. I, I, I really changed my mind uh, on that in around 2006, where I wrote my first academic paper on the engagement approach, um, because I thought it actually disincentivized laggards because they just thought, well, they will always be at the bottom of the pack. We mm. may as well just stay the bad boys of the group and uh, <laughs> reap, the, reap the rewards. Uh, so uh, uh, for, for me, uh, it, it, it really turned out that um, creating a positive dialogue and connecting uh, different stakeholders um, so that you know think tanks non-governmental organizations as well as government as well as asset owners corporations and uh, and and shareholders and investment managers with one another and and understand how to um, uh, you know drive each one's agenda forward uh, by um, reducing risks that companies have by not understanding um, uh, the topics that, for, for example, asset owners are, are focusing on. And uh, it, it's really interesting. I had a, a tour of oil, oil country in, in Houston uh, a few years ago, uh, and uh, I went with an, um, a fundamental analyst, and they were much more interested in picking my brain than uh, picking his brain at the time because they 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 knew that they had much bigger knowledge gaps in in area of sustainability in the area of uh, ESG research providers and and they wanted to talk so it it really showed that you know closing that loop of you know different mar market participants was really important to them and uh, I think if if one strikes that dialogue in a constructive um, vicious favorite word uh, dialogue um, uh, that 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 would uh, reap the best rewards um, so so um, yeah engagement for me and it's still difficult in some markets because um, there they, they are perceived antitrust issues if that happens um, um, but uh, I think uh, having that dialogue with with companies is, is really important and I suppose the next step will be that there is more collaboration in the industry with different different asset owners as well as uh, investment managers that are speaking uh, similar languages uh, that that we we increase that over time I agree I think I think um, I mean fascinating firstly that you know companies you're finding are much more open to that dialogue or seeking out that dialogue actually in, in your example um, and I agree you know we can speculate on the future of stewardship um, but I, I think you know we're already seeing so much stronger kind of collaboration across the capital market structure and the value chain um which i think is driving really interesting and meaningful change because we're able to kind of work with one voice towards a kind of long-term outcome um maybe fran if we can pivot a little bit towards so thinking about a specific use case of, of stewardship and one in which mfs certainly is is kind of putting a stake in the ground around is sort of thinking about net zero and climate transition. Um, maybe if you could just briefly describe uh, how MFS is thinking about approaching 
the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative became a signatory in July. Uh, and, and why? So what underpins the approach that we've taken? What are some of the core principles in your mind that we're really thinking about when we're thinking about how do we articulate how we're going to have an investment process that is aligned to the net zero transition? So I suppose um, when when uh, MFS joined uh, the Net Zero Asset Manager Initiative, I, I wasn't here yet. Um, so uh, I inherited um, um, Enzyme uh, and creating the methodology with a huge degree of passion that that was already uh, at MFS, uh, which really set the bar uh, very high. Uh, and and I suppose that's really mirrored in what Enzyme wants to achieve is uh, achieve something that uh, is 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 very hard is going to stretch uh, everyone in the industry and and we want to join along uh, so um, we we had many discussions around uh, whether we should align our portfolios um, you know what the best number in terms of committing our assets under management is and we decided that uh, we wanted um, to to commit ourselves to something that for MFS uh, is stretching enough uh, and is also going to um, uh, change the dial uh, with regard to the overall uh, investment industry, uh, as well as reduce the risk for our clients uh, and, and our portfolios overall. So we rethought how to add up portfolios uh, by, by, by starting again and thinking, actually, uh, we have a, a, a wonderful research platform. Why don't we do that uh, according to asset classes uh, and, uh, and then think which asset class um, um, might be more problematic to, to decarbonize at this moment in time. Uh, there are still methodological uh, problems with regards to certain derivatives in, in our portfolios, but we, we, we felt com comfortable and confident uh, that, that we could commit uh, all of our listed equities um, uh, on uh, with, within the 90% of our assets under management, we committed um, uh, our list equities uh, as well as our corporate fixed uh, income. Uh, we are planning to also add uh, our sovereigns and municipal bonds uh, over time, uh, but we are less confident on the current methodologies uh, that are available uh, for those to um, uh, fixed income um, classes. So, so we, we will wait and see how that develops until 2025 and, and then add them to the mix. The way we want to uh, decarbonize the asset classes that we have committed uh, is through engagement. Uh, so we haven't uh, submitted uh, a specific uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction target. We will, of course, monitor that, but that we are hoping that through the engagement uh, with issuers in our portfolios that we, we can achieve a, a greenhouse gas reduction um, within the real economy uh, by guiding them and by encouraging them to submit uh, climate transition plans, robust and uh, rigorous climate transition plans uh, that are aligned with science-based targets um, and um, uh, on a 1.5 degree pathway and in line with, of course, the Paris Agreement, which uh, is the global goal that we are all trying to work towards. Great. So ambitious. And rigorous is sort of what I'm hearing. Um, what was interesting to me in my seat as we kind of working through that is how quickly we got to this idea that if if it's real here, then it has to kind of permeate the platform, which means we sort of start at 100 and sort of peel back, as you said, you know, are there 
asset classes where today it's we we don't have the same level of conviction in terms of committing to a pathway in terms of how how do you engage with a sovereign be they developed or emerging market for example or, or what is the right pathway for, for those whereas actually there is pretty good practice best practice established for some of the other asset classes um and that's already you know 90 plus percent of our aum so that's where we're going to um begin which is really interesting i mean that sets your team the stewardship team uh an incredibly ambitious agenda H how are you thinking about what does that look like in terms of what an engagement agenda will be from mfs um in terms of achieving that so thinking about the 90 percent of assets and the interim and the long-term goals that you've just laid out um what is the team currently thinking about i know this is a current work in progress but but how are you thinking about that now uh we want to be smart uh, i suppose that is our first objective by uh, dividing companies according to uh, risk and materiality to 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 mfs um to risk to the company to for our for our reputational risks and we have tiered uh, companies and issuers according to higher risk medium risk and low risk uh, also in terms of um you know, where, where does a company or an issuer stand? How much progress have they already made without our engagement? Uh, so so we, we want to be smart. We don't want to double up work. Uh, we want to collaborate with, um, with the industry, like um, Climate Action 100 Plus uh, is one of those uh, collaborative bodies that, that we are working uh, uh, together with. Uh, and, and we also want to be mindful, uh, as I said before, uh, about methodologies that haven't been created so we will leave uh, certain sectors um, um, for a little while uh, and start with sectors uh, where there is already an established framework uh, so the first um, couple of sectors that that we are looking at uh, are the power utilities sector the capital goods sector and we will phase in the IT sector uh, at the end of the year primarily because our methodology will be based on uh, the work that the science based targets initiative um, uh, is undertaking um, uh, and the net zero investment framework um, that the IRGCC, the Institutional Investor Group on Climate Change has, has developed. Uh, so we really want to understand how uh, different sectors are aligning uh, themselves with the uh, 1.5 uh, degree um, pathway uh, that, that we need to be on. So by 2030, we would like to see our portfolio companies to be aligning uh, with the 1.5 degree pathway, and uh, we will encourage them to, to be aligned uh, with that over time. There can potentially be quite a large delta uh, between the targets they are setting. There are often uh, technologies uh, as part of those targets that are not fully functioning yet uh, uh, or they you know uh, they, there is regulation in place that that disallows um, uh, certain activities like carbon offsets uh, that that might not actually uh, lower temperature uh, of over time so we we will monitor some companies that have already um, um, put targets out and we will engage with companies that haven't got targets in place yet uh, and uh, if uh, a company is slow in, in engagement, uh, we are 
very positive on uh, deploying our escalation mechanisms that, that we have in our toolbox, uh, such as uh, vote at AGMs. Uh, we have um, already presented in this voting season, which, which we are in the middle of. Uh, we have presented statements at, at AGMs, uh, where we where we encouraging the boards to um, make progress, uh, for example, to align with the net zero um, uh, benchmark that Climate Action 100 group has, has developed. So we put these statements at AGMs. Um, we, we will, uh, in the future, vote against um, chairmans uh, on boards or, or even more, more people on, on the board if we feel there's a lack of progress. Uh, but, but it shouldn't be understood as um, uh, a combative, uh, but but rather a strategic move uh, that we are undertaking, and 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 so far uh, the boards where we have presented uh, statements at AGM really value um, um, the direction that gives them internally because it is a lever for for a company if they if they see a large group of shareholders uh, to demand uh, certain actions which which they need to um, mm. uh, get buy in internally as well. Yeah, absolutely. As as you think about what it means to be an, an owner or a, you know a shareholder, or, um, and providing that clarity of direction, and as you said before, you know one of my favourite words around this whole arena is the word of constructivism. So you know this idea that or I think people walk around with this idea that you can either be an activist in this space or completely kind of asleep at the switch, passive, you know, outsource it to somebody else. And I think um, more and more people are waking up to this idea that actually, you know, for long term owners, people that actually take an ownership mentality to the things that they invest in, you can be long term constructive in that dialogue. And actually, um, and again, there's been a lot of work done on this academically that those shareholders typically have a lot of saliency, i.e., you know, you don't, it's not necessarily size that always counts in in some of these engagements but actually the long-term ownership the the quality of engagement that you're having with with management can be determined by multiple factors not just the size of our holding even though you know mfs has the luxury of being often a very large shareholder in, in the things that we choose to invest in um i'm glad you touched on on escalation in that way i know that's a, a question that, that we often get um and one thing that again it's interesting a question that i've got and i know that you've got is you know why haven't we committed to portfolio decarbonization sort of targets the way that i choose to articulate that and friend this is your chance to correct me or to tell me a better way to think about it but is you know really to boil it down i think to its essence is i think we have a belief that the real economy has to lead and our portfolio statistics will follow and to us, the reverse of that, which is where I think a lot of people are moving to, which is if we manage to our portfolio statistics, then somehow that magically translates to the real economy. We, we have less belief in that in that latter model. So to us, we think if we can, as you said, use our voice, use our power to engage and get real, you know, real emissions down in, in the in the global economy, then our portfolios, you know, will um, decarbonize, you know, by themselves and, and we'll, those metrics will be an outcome. Um, rather than sort of necessarily targeting them, which could actually create um, a whole heap of unintended consequences or perverse incentives. Um, how, is there a different way that you think about that, that problem or are there other elements that you would add to that in terms of, because um, that's one area where I think we believe something that's slightly different to the broad marketplace today. 
I, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, I think uh, in general, we will have to keep an, an eye on the greenhouse gas emissions uh, within our portfolios. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if we see there is no real economy change uh, with, within the companies, we will have to rethink whether we need to tighten our strategy. Uh, but maybe I could give you um, uh, another example from the past uh, that's not climate related, but that really brought home uh, why companies need that internal push and, and those levers and where unintended consequences have been really detrimental to outcomes of responsible investment. Uh, and I talked to a, a tobacco company uh, um, a while ago, uh, and uh, they had a very nice uh, sustainability social report out over 20 years and were still struggling to uh, uh, come to grips with child labor within their supply chain. So, so my first question was, I, I see you have um, published your 20th um, uh, social report this year. Uh, why is you know child labour-free supply chain still five years out? Uh, and um, uh, and and the response from from the head of sustainability, uh, which I thought at at first was quite combative, was there aren't enough responsible investors that talk to us because we are a bad company. Uh, and uh, and then I said to her, OK, if, if you have a wish list of questions that you would like investors to ask, what what would that be? And she said, for me, really, to get enough leverage in, in internally, I would like to do human rights impact assessments. Uh, and, and and again, it shows where, where some unintended consequences of uh, responsible investors excluding blanket excluding certain sectors whether that is for 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 you know the tobacco industry or for other for other uh, investors uh, the fossil fuel industry because of climate change impacts it really has unintended consequences uh, to um, you know what what we can achieve in in the real economy uh, so so I think for for climate change it's the same we we really need to impact the dirty end uh, um, of the spectrum in order to um, decarbonize um, uh, the world globally uh, and, and one of the really positive examples there was uh, we encouraged a steel company to join the Energy Transition Commission, uh, which is a body uh, where all hard to abate sectors are coming to together uh, and they are discussing the areas where there are currently no solutions that um, um, that they need in order to decarbonize shipping, to decarbonize aviation, to decarbonize fossil fuels, um, uh, automotive industry. Uh, and uh, and for that steel company, uh, it was um, it was a eureka moment, a turnaround moment where where they are now lobbying government and 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 really trying to uh, connect the dots that that are needed to be connected in, in order to um, to stay at 1.5, which um, some believe is already out of out of scope um, at this moment in time. Yeah, it's fascinating. And again, so much to think about the tobacco example, thinking about, you know, what responsible owners can do and the power that they have in simply asking the right questions, as you point out, um, or how we engage in the hard to abate, almost, you know, impossible today to abate sectors um, but ones that we're still reliant on in terms of concrete, steel, aviation, shipping, uh, etc. Um, incredibly important. Is there, is there a, what, in, if I was to ask you this question, what's the most important or critical thing you think all investors need to be focused on right now? 
I, th I think it's probably impact. Uh, so whatever, whatever area you, you, you think to engage on uh, is that we are trying to understand and then report um, what impact we've made over time. There has been a lot of positive engagement, a lot of positive chats, um, but, but what impact do we make? And, and there still needs to be lots of uh, academic background uh, on, on, on this issue, but I suppose uh, breaking down uh, an engagement plan um, into, into chunks that are manageable and then reporting on, on how much progress has been made on, say, each individual milestone over time. It's understanding what, what time frame has the investor given themselves to engage on this topic and then integrating it into uh, our investment decision making. So whether that is uh, our conviction level uh, being challenged by the lack of feedback we've got we've got from an issuer uh, or whether there is potential disinvestment of a specific stock because our conviction level has 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 gone down so far uh, and then recording that and understanding what that does uh, to our overall thinking within the firm um yeah uh, I, I think i think that is the most important area that um, will lead to asset owners trusting investment managers more, which I suppose was eroded uh, in the great financial crisis. I agree. And, you know, that I feel, I mean, you wrapped a lot into impact. Um, time horizon, I think, is absolutely vital. And um, there's a lot of confusion, I think, on this, because, again, I, again, I, I hope you agree, but constructive engagement takes time. Long, any, any meaningful, you know, the last time I changed anyone's mind on anything, whether at work or at home, um, it took a long period of time. And, and very rarely did I win by shouting louder than the other person. You know, often it's kind of deep empathy, understanding, working constructively with them, moving through some of those issues and finding a kind of win-win scenario, um, which again, very rarely happens within one quarter or one meeting, right? And so yeah. I think here at MFS, you know, we have almost the luxury of, of time horizon that many, many of, to be honest, our clients or intermediaries don't seem to have, you know, they want to see sort of results, quote unquote, um, or impact almost um, immediately. Um, and then you talked about, you know, measurement uh, and trust right at the end, which I love because there's so much greenwashing in our industry today. And again, a personal view is, I think we have to be I'd love your take on this. I think we have to be really careful on the agency that we claim on the impact that we create. I think there's a lot of noise in terms of people, you know, ascribing some of their activity to achieving specific SDGs or achieving certain outcomes at companies. And, and even where my bid is, even where MFS is a large shareholder, we are just one stakeholder of many that are driving this change. And so I, we've historically been very conservative in terms of not wanting to overclaim our agency. Do you think we need to kind of rethink that or do you think that will change? Those dynamics are going to change in future in terms of people demanding more sort of transparency on the impact that we are trying seeking to drive and create through the work that you're doing and the platform is doing? Uh, I, I, I agree. We definitely have to be careful on the agency just because we have engaged with company X, Y and Z on, on a certain climate issue doesn't mean we have um, moved the dial. But I suppose um, uh, 
communicating what we've engaged on in detail, uh, what time frame we've given a company and uh, what escalation uh, mechanisms we consider to deploy if certain milestones haven't haven't been achieved. I, th I think that already shows quite quite a um, quite a good degree of where we are expecting impact to happen, whether that's that's been done by us individually or uh, by a collaborative group that we've joined or, or by somebody completely different. Uh, I, I think uh, I, I really like um, the idea of the nudge theory. Uh, mm. So if we are nudging companies, whether that is us or others in, in a consistent fashion in the same language, uh, then then hopefully um, um, that that last butterfly will um, uh, enable uh, the company to 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 find that change. Flap its wings, and we'll see some yeah. tornadoes. I um, uh, Fran, to pivot again um, and ask you some questions a little bit about you as we as we sort of wrap up here. So thank you so much for your time. Um, when I think about outside of MFS, what do you like to devote your time to? Uh, well, I have kids. Two, uh, two girls. Uh, they eat up most of my uh, outside MFS time, uh, which I which I really love. Um, uh, they are very sporty, um, play football. Uh, so on a Sunday, I'm often to be found uh, uh, next to a football pitch, um, uh, which 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 is fun. Uh, I, I love nature. I love uh, art. Uh, so my my kids, uh, uh, my youngest, she is enamored with uh, Frida Kahlo, uh, the Mexican mm -hmm. artist, um, uh, and um, We've just been uh, to Paris to see the Musée d'Orsay, where she also loves uh, the Degas ballerina. So I'm trying, I'm trying to pass on love for other things um, outside school and and academics uh, to them. So, so 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 art, art, travel, and sport, I suppose. Excellent. Are you a good painter and drawer? Uh, I, I yeah, well, I would fancy my chances. <laughs> I often think your whiteboard is a work of art um, whenever I come to your office. Um, We've exchanged books before. I'd love to ask you, what's the book, article or piece of literature that you've shared or recommended the most? My favourite book for the last 25 years, and I've been trying to find a new one, uh, has been Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. Uh, it's it's a really wonderful book and absolutely current um, at the moment as well. Uh, it describes um, Hans Kastorp, who is the protagonist in, in the story. Thomas Mann is, is also, he, he won the um, Literature Nobel Prize, um, just to give him another plug. So he's, he's in a tuberculosis um, hospital in the Swiss Alps, uh, and watches the First World War or the, the rise of the First World War um, unfold. Uh, and he discusses absolutely everything in, in this book from radicalism to nationalism, love, music. So, so quite a lot of the um, late um, uh, 19th century music gets played in the book. So you, you constantly, while reading, hear different music. But, but the most interesting part of the book, I find, is, is the um, time how time plays out so he stays longer and longer uh, and i never experienced and, and i love reading i ne never experienced such a physical aspect of a book on on myself mm. you just want time to slow down which which i think working in investment management is 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 really quite a luxury to make time slow down and uh, uh, take that escape into the swiss alps definitely what a great recommendation What's the kindest thing anyone's done for you? Um, well, it, it, 
I, I suppose uh, when I was 15, uh, so uh, I was a really, really big Rolling Stones fan uh, at that time. And I saved up all of my pocket money um, uh, to buy one record um, sort of every other month. Uh, but I was in the record shop every day uh, of the month to look at the records that I potentially wanted to buy. And there was this um, shop assistant uh, who, who must have known me for a very long time, who one day um, uh, tapped my shoulder and said, I've changed my um, record collection into a CD collection, which I'm sure he, uh, he is really quite cross with himself about and, and gave me about 25 records, Rolling Stones records, very, very old ones. Uh, which are wonderful and I never knew his name I've never spoken to him again uh, and he was just um, a very very nice person so uh, yeah that wow, was a, a very kind thing. what a yeah, generous thing was... to do you still have those records today yes absolutely yeah, I treasure them <laughs> excellent so if he uh, hears me thank you very much <laughs> yeah through the magic of, of media then he's listening and well done um what, Fran, what one message do you think is really important to leave with our listeners? Um, I suppose um, small change can affect large change uh, over time uh, if you are um, patient and, and, and you believe in uh, what you want to change. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Fran. Thank you, Vish. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Hopefully you're left with a better idea of what Enzam is and why it's so important for investment managers to set ambitious and robust targets to meet the 2050 climate goals of the Paris Accord. Hopefully you're also left with a better idea of the nuances of stewardship and engagement, the way that we do that with companies, the process involved, and how we look to influence positive, long-term change at the companies in which we own. Now remember, you can subscribe to All Angles through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you choose to get your podcasts from. We really want to hear from you. So if you have any questions or topics that you would like us to cover, please get in touch by emailing us at allangles at mfs.com. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.